Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Big Six Athlete Podcast. I'm Coach Liel, and I'm here with Coach Rami. And today we're hosting one of the most appreciated experts in strength and hypertrophy world, Dr. Eric Helms, uh, to discuss programming considerations for multiple strength goals for the same athlete, which, of course, we have a lot to say about this topic. Uh, but first of all, thank you very much, Eric, for joining us. And I guess, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. First off, just huge thanks for having me on. And also big thanks for you guys staying up so late there in Israel <laughs> to make the time difference work between uh, me here in New Zealand. Um, thank you. Yeah, I think probably the uh, the easiest way to introduce myself is that I'm someone who just started out, who was bit by the iron bug. Um, I was an athlete first. Uh, really got interested in competing in strength sport as well as physique sport. Uh, I had my first uh, like non-sanctioned push-pull powerlifting meet in 06 and then did my first uh, natural bodybuilding season in 07. And since then I've done, oh geez, like uh, 20-ish weightlifting meets and powerlifting meets combined, a couple of strongman events, a Highland Games comp. Uh, and this is my fifth bodybuilding season, which will bring me up to 18 shows once this season is all said and done. Maybe we'll see. There's uh, potentially some some shows I may or may not do, et cetera. Uh, turned 40 this year, so I've been doing the doing the damn thing a while. Um, mm -hmm. I became a trainer in 2005. Uh, just after, a little after a year of lifting weights. So you're your typical, I think I know a lot more than I actually do lifter who then becomes a trainer. Um, but then I got just as interested in the, um, I would say the intellectual side of training and bodybuilding and, and, and strength training as much as I was the actual pursuit of it, the competitive side of it and uh, the experience of it. And that led me to eventually forming a training company with my colleagues where we coach Brokery Bodybuilders and Powerlifters 3D Muscle Journey, and also pursuing my academic career and being kind of the chief science officer for 3D Muscle Journey, which led eventually all the way from me moving from California to do my uh, master's and PhD here at the Auckland University of Technology, which is a great sports science program, um, and got uh, second master's and PhD in sport and exercise. The master's more focused on sport and nutrition specifically in uh, powerlifters and, and bodybuilders. And same thing with my PhD, a little more focused on the training side of things. So found out my wife and I loved it here. We stayed here. And now I'm a research fellow uh, at Auckland University of Technology in the sports physiology and nutrition, as well as strength conditioning research streams, where I'm basically trying to do uh, what my mentors did for me and uh, pay it forward. And anyone from around the world who wants to fly out to experience lord of the rings plus bodybuilding with me they can <laughs> and uh so yeah so now, now i split my time between writing science communication competing a little bit of coaching i'm not a full-time coach anymore that stopped around 2014 um advising and uh, also doing uh reviewing of research uh for monthly applications and strength support I'm the mass research review i should say and uh yeah that's kind mm -hmm. of what i do i'm a educator, researcher, science communicator, athlete, and, uh, and sometime coach uh, with, with the limited time I have. And often show Amazing. up for other people's podcast. <laughs> That's the science communication bit. That's right. <laughs> right. So again, thank you for, uh, for joining us. And I suppose we'll, pre we'll present ourselves, our brand, The Big Six Athlete. Uh, so basically, The Big Six Athlete is uh, an approach of programming that aims to maximize strength uh, at both uh, the combination of both uh, barbells and body weight through the what we call the big six movements, which are the squat, bench press, deadlift, overhead press, chin-ups, and dips. Um, we kind of saw the need to come up with this kind of approach because there aren't uh, many programs out there that combines two of these elements, and that is something we love. And that's uh, that's in a nutshell. Uh, Rami, did I miss something? No, it's, uh, it's right. Just... Uh... Uh, we see uh, from our personal experience, we see a lot of, a lot of individuals who uh, who don't uh, describe themselves as uh, powerlifters, who don't want to be specific in powerlifting or don't want to be specific in bodyweight training. And uh, they want to improve uh, uh, in uh, both barbell-based movements and the chin-up and dips. So that's why we thought about uh, combining them to the big six, which is uh, like uh, the big three, but for the big uh, six movements. 
Yeah, and that's also our way to the way that we love to train. We we both uh, train that way and try to maximize our strength, on arm strength, all of those movements. Uh, understand that it is not an easy mission to to do this type of things because there are a lot of movements under the same program and you try to pick in all of them. Um, so the first things that comes to mind is periodization or regulation, just to manipulate training variables. Uh, it becomes more uh, relevant as you get more advanced, obviously. And we know, uh, Dr. Rams, that you uh, study a lot of these topics and talk a lot about these topics and doing a great job at it. Um, so what, do you want to, to elaborate more on uh, um, periodization or regulation just in general? Yeah, it's just in general, if people aren't familiar with the terms, um, periodization, it's been around for a long time. Uh, the term is typically attributed to Matveyev, who's a you know Russian sports scientist from the 60s. But if we go back to really the roots of periodization, you can even find things that you could describe as daily undulating periodization in ancient Greece. Um, of you, know, you can see uh, soldiers and gladiators who would simply train different things on different days um, and just finding a logistical way of dealing with the various different qualities they needed to get better at and skills and finding that those things were done better when they're in a recovered state and not trying to train other things um, because you only have a limited pool of resources. So if you want to do a whole bunch of running and aerobic work, you might do that on a different day than, you know, training with your, your gladius or whatever. You know, I, I can't, recall exactly what the the, the greek dup looked <laughs> like used. um but but you know if, if you look at some of these ancient historical records you could describe it that way um and it's almost synonymous with uh training planning and organization uh the tenets of quote-unquote periodization in the more modern realm if you read people like mike stone or tutor bumpa etc you know they would describe it as a phased based training that has some type of logical sequence where you know prior blocks of training enhance subsequent blocks. And I think the more you try to pin down periodization, the more you start to find that we're operating a little bit outside of what we actually have that's certainly really well proven. Um, but absolutely, there are elements of that that are true. So for example, it takes a long time to accumulate a lot of muscle mass relative to increasing strength because strength is a skill. You know, Strength has components to it, uh, including the, the amount of contractile tissue and muscle mass you have. You know, if you were to just take a cross-sectional sample of a bunch of people on the street, you would generally find that there was higher force output on non-skilled movements, say like an isokinetic dynamometer or a mid-thigh pole or the various tests we have of removing the skill component in the lab, but just testing raw force output in the people with larger muscles and the muscles that are contributing to those tests. So it's absolutely true. Bigger muscles are generally stronger. Um, but training the quality of strength is a lot more than just that morphology or, or muscle size. It also has to do with specific neuromuscular adaptations that are specific to specific joint angles, uh, angular velocities, if it's a, a dynamic movement, um, and uh, can be limited by various different factors. Um, and there are kind of raw changes to the neuromuscular qualities, uh, like, you know, theorized like rate coding increasing the number of twitches and muscles you can get in contractions, um, you know, better intra and intramuscular coordination, uh, less antagonist coactivations. So there's kind of less breaks on, if you will, um, and very quickly, some basic adaptations of just being able to increase central motor drive. Uh, so, and then you've also got the skill component, you know, like, do you know how to keep the bar close when you do a deadlift, right? Um, are you going to shift to a sumo deadlift to suit your leverages and find that now you can deadlift more? Um, do you know how to get a good rebound? And do you know how to use the right speed on the eccentric to get the most out of the concentric? All those things that aren't just raw neuromuscular adaptations. And then even on top of that, you have things like self-efficacy and uh, you know bracing and all these other little skills and mental qualities, uh, the ability to get into the right arousal state which uh, Rami, you'd know very well from your work in sports psychology can impact performance, right? So strength is a collection of a lot of things. Um, so mm -hmm. it absolutely does make sense conceptually that it may make more sense to work on those qualities in some type of sequential fashion, or at least not all simultaneously. Um, and this can even connect to some of our motor learning theory, um, the principle of varied practice. You know, we have a fair amount of research, not typically on lifting, like dart throwing and hitting things and throwing mm -hmm. things that 
you know, if you just practice a specific skill only all the time, you will get better at it. Uh, but if you switch it up and you do random practice or varied practice or block practice, while the initial skill acquisition takes longer, you actually have to go through this process, at least theoretically, of forgetting and re-remembering as a novice. Like, okay, oh, sweet, I'm going to do a squat. Oh, shit, now I got to do a squat band. This feels different. So as a novice, you are basically more deeply ingraining those skills. They've done a number of studies comparing random practice to uh, like static practice, if you will. And you repeatedly see slower skill initial skill acquisition, better skill retention. Uh, so it basically becomes a more durable skill. And um, that applies somewhat to weight training. And there's some research that backs that up. And you will see some schools of thought uh, that are far more specific. And there are pros and cons to that or a little more varied in the approaches they take. Kind of think you're, you're west side, if you will. So take a lot of forms. You can be a little more movement focused or it can be kind of your more typical linear periodization where the loads get heavier over time, which is a form of, um, you know, changing in the practice or daily undulating periodization, which is very similar to varied practice. Um, a lot of that leverages what's called contextual interference, which is just another way of kind of saying, oh, I forget this thing and I have to learn it a different way. And then it solidifies the memory. So periodization has roots that kind of pull from a lot of different areas, you know, like, hey, we got to do hypertrophy training to build muscle mass and then be stronger, maybe. Uh, if we're talking about a power athlete, okay, we build the muscle, then we build maximal strength, and that'll improve power because that's force times velocity. So we're enhancing the, the force side of it. That's a little more tenuous. Um, but nonetheless, um, that's the basic theory. And then there's also the motor learning stuff that I mentioned on the actual movements you decide to do. And then depending on, upon where you apply this, obviously a baseball player's periodization theory is going to look a lot different than a strength athlete. You know, it's going to become a lot more simplified for a power lifter. You know, it's typically get big and get strong. And a lot of, there's a ton of overlap. A baseball player might be like, get big enough if I need to. Am I a designated hitter or am I a pitcher or am I a shortstop? And then also <laughs> I have to run and then do aerobic and, and skill-based training and all this shit. So it's uh, right. a, a lot more, uh, it's very sports specific. Uh, so that's periodization. Mm -hmm. um, and then autoregulation is just simply what I would describe as overlaying the principle of individualization on top of that and the understanding of what we call the biopsychosocial model. So if you were to kind mm -hmm. of go far enough back into the roots of sports science, it kind of just adopted a lot of things from medical science. And, and at a time period, like I said, in the 60s, when kind of sports science first kicked off, where we had a little more of a reductionist black and white view of the way the body adapted and the interrelatedness of uh, mind and environment with the body. So, you know, like, absolutely, we've got gas, general adaptation syndrome, right? Um, we have a stressor. Uh, immediately, we have the alarm reaction, and then we adapt to it over time, which is the training effect, and we get better at dealing with it in homeostasis is at a higher level. Absolutely true. However, that's impacted by were you stuck in traffic? Did you fight with your significant other? Um, did you have a death in the family? Uh, your nutrition, your quality of sleep? Um, were you on your phone watching a depressing video or you, were you watching, you know, the, the speech from Game of Inches, you know, or, or, or a Rocky speech? And there's actually data showing that you can have acute changes in, you know, hormonal output and performance and arousal levels based upon all these things. So instead of just going right, the input is what's in my spreadsheet. Uh, plus maybe nutrition and, and sleep if I want to acknowledge that. And the output is my performance and I can calculate this and predict things. Now we go, right, there's a whole lot of variables at play. This is a dynamical system. And therefore, uh, we need to have some way to adjust, right? And we have individual response variation. We got a lot of data showing that the same program might result in you plateauing and me progressing. So we need to adjust for that, right? So on a day-to-day -day basis, my strength might fluctuate. So maybe I use something like a RPE, a rating of perceived exertion that's specific to resistance training to adjust my loads. Maybe I have a flexible template where uh, my plan on Monday is to do a hard session, but if I'm not doing well for all those other various factors or for whatever reason, maybe I can't predict why, I can shift into it being a, a lower volume power day, kick the can down the road and come back when I'm refreshed. So it's basically introducing flexibility and individualization into a periodized plan. Um, is what autoregulation mm -hmm. is. And that's how those two concepts marry up. And that's essentially what a lot of my PhD work was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, well, before Easy. I ask you the question, I just want to say that I remember once 
that you talked about seeing particular videos be before you train and you talked about seeing erotic videos and thank you for that eric <laughs> thank you for that eric. <laughs> amen <laughs> You, yeah. you you uh you just just use the incognito window while you're on the way to the gym and you're good to go. That's all I gotta <laughs> say right there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I took your advice, so thank you for this. And <laughs> the question about the question, um, of course there are a lot of ways that we can apply periodization and our regulation is uh, the claim of there is no one size fits all. And of course, uh, as you get more advanced, I guess these things are more relevant. Uh, obviously, when you have multiple strangles and not just few, uh, let alone when these strangles can over can can often uh, overlap with each other. So, for instance, uh, we know that uh, with the movements that we mentioned before, we have six movements in one program that you want to pick in all of them, which is not a small amount of movements at the begin with. But also, you can see some overlap between those movements. Uh, so, for instance, you have three pushing movements: you have dips, you have overhead press, and you have bench press. Uh, and obviously, we can see the, the overlap between all those movements. They're all under the same movement pattern. You use the same muscles to initiate these movements. And as you get more, as you get stronger, you will feel the, the overlap between them and the interference between them. Um, so, Eric, I'm curious, how would you attack this type of uh, programming, uh, assuming that you do want to pick all of them, uh, not necessarily simultaneously because you're not preparing for any competition, just doing for your own good? Uh, and I guess that can be some advantage. Uh, but how would you program this um, from two aspects? The one is how would you prescribe it in a given week, in a micro cycle, uh, regarding the allocation of volume and intensity and frequency, uh, not necessarily in these three pushing movements, but uh, with multiple goals Generally. when you uh, overlap, yeah. Uh, and the other aspect is how would you uh, program it, assuming that you want to pick in all of them, like looking at the micro cycle at the long term, um, like, would you do it simultaneously? Would you go to staggered picking? Um, so could you elaborate more on this? Yeah. Do you guys like stories? Yeah. <laughs> yes, very much All right. so. All right. Well, I'll tell a story about my goals in 2020 um, because That's I was great. actually trying to peak in nine movements. Um, wow. So... In 2020, I had the goal of wanting to compete in a powerlifting comp, a weightlifting comp, and a strongman comp in the same year. Um, I don't know okay. if you guys heard about COVID. It's a minor thing that happened in 2020. Yeah, it's just a small, yeah, <laughs> small incident. <laughs> yeah, so it, it did interrupt my plans, and I ended up having to find a very end-of-year Highland Games competition, which I really didn't get to train for. So. The rubber didn't really hit the road fully, but I did do a weightlifting comp and a powerlifting comp between lockdowns here. But my training for most of that year was specifically to peak in all of those at different times without backsliding and balancing them. So for those who don't know, um, competitive powerlifting, we have the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. I, I, I'd use a low bar squat. I use a max legal grip as arched as my not very flexible ass can, can do bench press. And I also do a sumo deadlift. So I try to cheat on all three lifts. Um, <laughs> and then in, uh, in weightlifting, it's the snatch and the clean and the jerk. So that's five movements right there. And people have written and talked a lot about, you know, building the super total. Um, you can find, you know, right. Juggernaut has talked about that. There's a few other people, Steffi Cohen, for example, um, Max Ada, all those good folks have, have, mm -hmm. have played around with that. And a lot of information. However, the, uh, the Auckland Strongman Comp that I wanted to do had four events in it. It had a, a monster dumbbell overhead press. So now I had a more of a strict press. There's still some drive, but uh, more of a pure overhead pressing movement. A, uh, a truck pull that I had, had to get ready for. Wow. Uh, Atlas stones, which is basically like a round back deficit deadlift where you have to lap it and then fully extend up to, up to your chest. I didn't have to fully, fully extend because I'm six foot. So the one strength sport where it's good to be tall. And then the last event, if I recall correctly, might have been a conventional deadlift where you can hitch with straps. Um, I can't quite remember if that if that was it or was a sandbag throw. But anyway, nonetheless, I had a total of uh, nine movements that I was that I was working on. Now the interesting thing, and this is a, will apply to many people when they come into a goal like this, is that I had varied levels of development and strength for the different skills. So. Like I mentioned, I had started powerlifting in 06 
And my progression rate in the big three from powerlifting was a lot slower than everything else um, because I was probably closer to my, my quote unquote peak, if you will. Uh, my best squat was 227 and a half, uh, or it became that after this, this period of time, but it was around 225. My best bench was around 150, 152. Uh, my best deadlift was in the 250s at the time. Um, and I had done two stints, this was being my second one, of weightlifting. And I was really, I wouldn't say I was a novice weightlifter, but I was not well suited to it. I hadn't had great coaching. Uh, and I was really coming back to it and trying to focus on the technical side of it. But I think my best snatch was uh, like 87 kilos. My best clean and jerk was like 114. Not great if you look at it compared to my weight, my powerlifting numbers, right? Um, weightlifters, typically you can squat 220. They're doing a good 10, 20% more than that. And then strongman, I was a total novice on. So it was my first time ever doing it. Um, obviously, I was going to get a lot of transfer from my kind of basic strength that I had from barbell-based training and some bodyweight training as a bodybuilder as well, and just my varied resistance training. So I realized that the dose I needed to improve each one of these skills was different, and that's going to apply to everybody. So um, I needed a relatively high dose on the weightlifting um, because it was very skill-dependent. And I was kind of novice at it in my previous stint. I wanted to, to improve upon that. I needed a, roughly a maintenance dose on my powerlifting. And then I needed frequent exposures, but not a lot of volume and just basic specific practice on the strongman comps, strongman lifts, because they were totally new to me. But I knew anything I did would make me better at it, just practicing the movements mm -hmm. themselves. So, you know, if you took someone straight out of the gym who had no weight training background and they wanted to say, I want to do a strongman comp in a year, You'd have to do a fair amount of conditioning work. You'd have to do a fair amount of hypertrophy work. Uh, you would probably need, you know, some some like different types of conditioning depending on the events they're doing. But you need to build a basic base for them because they're kind of like it's like heavy CrossFit if people aren't too familiar with strongman, you know, without right. some of the aerobic components. So mm -hmm. I had I was in decent enough shape. I'd actually just come off a bodybuilding season, so I'd done a fair amount of cardio. Um, didn't need that. Uh, I'd been lifting weights for geez, what was this? 16 years at this point. So I had the sufficient muscle mass, but I just did not know how to lift an Atlas stone. And I did not know how to do a monster deadlift. I didn't know the technique for pulling a truck, believe it or not. You know, the only thing I really knew how to do was the conventional deadlift. And I was just annoyed that I had to do it because I'm so much stronger sumo, but it is what it is. Right. So, right. um, so basically once to one to two times a week, I dedicated to just coming in and practicing those strongman movements with very low volume, but relatively high intensity, meeting myself where I was at, auto-regulating the load I used, and doing it with people who knew what they were doing, who could teach me in a strongman gym. That left me three other days. And essentially, those three days were combined weightlifting, powerlifting workouts. And I emphasized what I needed more work on. So they always started with a snatch or a cleaner, clean and jerk, and then I had to balance the rest of the lifts in there. And the volume and dosage differed. So typically, it was just me doing sufficient maintenance work on the power lifts after getting a lot of practice, typically like an hour in on the on the weightlifting movements. So this was kind of my default program. And then where periodization came in was that the competitions were spread out throughout the the, the time period. So anytime I got closer to one of these competitions, when I got closer to my first comp, which was a weightlifting comp everything else went into maintenance mode. I didn't want to backslide on my, my strongman stuff. I didn't want to backslide on my power lifts. And this is where a good conversation about what does a maintenance dose even look like? Well, the cool thing is that right. we've actually got some recent research that's come out that suggests that intensity or load on the bar for strength is a very powerful tool. Um, even in relatively high level power lifters, just simply doing one to three max attempts not even necessarily to the point where you absolutely need a spotter, but what we call like a nine or nine and a half RPE um, is sufficient to actually improve strength for at least a short time period or at the very least maintain it. Um, so that's what I did. You know, I was simply doing, you know, one to two singles at like a nine to nine and a half RPE and literally no back off work on the squat bench and deadlift as I was approaching my weightlifting comps. And then I was basically doing a weightlifting program and then having just one day a week where I would do the strongman uh, stuff. Again, just basically working up to one practice set. So this enabled me to put a lot more of my resources into weightlifting. And then once I finished competing in weightlifting, 
I then did this, I did basically put all of that on the back burner um, and then started shifting my focus over to powerlifting before the powerlifting comp. And then eventually wait, uh, you know, all the strongman movements became something I trained three days a week, which is just one weightlifting day and one powerlifting day for the strongman competition. When I came close to that, it got canceled, it got locked down, all that crap. And I found the, the, uh, the Highland Games thing. But I think that is an example of what that looks like. You're adapting your periodization program to the demands of when you want to peak each. Um, the dosage, which will also dictate the frequency uh, and the volume, is going to be you know, largely impacted by your experience level and the needs. So you're going to do a specific individual analysis of, of what, are these, what are these person's needs. This would look very different for someone who um, had maybe been a, like a CrossFitter who was really, really good at the weightlifts, but didn't have much muscle size and had the conditioning, um, they would probably be doing a lot more like reps on the strong, on the, on the, on the power lifts to kind of build that strength and also their muscle mass and probably some just non-specific work. Like, you know, let's, let's throw in some, some bodybuilding work on top of that. Um, even though they might've been like, say a better weightlifter than I, they were probably what, 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 like, what's their cap? You know, for me, my cap was not, man, you need a bigger back and bigger delt so you can do a heavier clean and jerk. It's like you're a shitty clean and jerker. So let's <laughs> practice the skill, right? Um, so those individual needs should always be built in a periodization plan. And I did essentially follow the big, big tenants. You know, I, there was more volume initially and then it became more intensified. But I only started following those kind of periodization tenants when I was like six to eight weeks out from a meet. Because the rest of the time, I kind of had this background structure of trying to peak all these multiple components. Uh, and then each time that happened, I just had to think about, all right, what's the maintenance dose for the other skills I need, which is going to differ based upon my skill level with them. And then what's the transfer, right? I was a little less right. nervous about doing maintenance work on my squat when I'm doing clean and jerks and snatches, where each time I'm doing a squat pattern, even though it's in a different position, right? Do I, do I really need a lot of volume work? If I have to work mm -hmm. up to, you know, six by two on snatches and then five by three right. on clean and jerk. Probably not, you know. Um, do I really need to do a lot of deadlift work and conventional deadlift work if I'm doing, you know, uh, variations on my clean and jerk where I'm doing clean pulls with 140? Like, yeah, it's, it's not me mm -hmm. conventional deadlifting 210, but it's, you know, a lot of reps when, when, when you build up to it. So I really just need to practice the skill on deadlifts and practice the skill on squats. So I was actually doing a lot more benching than anything else. And I'd think, okay, well, I don't want to bench first. Like that, that's going to, that, that seems to, and everyone tells me in weightlifting, it's going to mess up your snatch. And I did experience that. So I had this interesting program where, you know, I do a bunch of snatch, a bunch of clean and jerk, and then like a squat, one low bar squat, and then a sumo deadlift. And then I would do a bunch of benching, you know? So that, mm -hmm. that sounds weird. And it looks strange if you see it, but it makes a lot of sense when you think about who the person was designed for and what their goals were. And then it did follow that periodization pattern. It was basically daily undulating. Um, and, you know, I didn't need a whole lot of variation, no like West Side approach, because I'm already trying to peak nine lifts, you know. So there's going to be some of these interesting transfers that I couldn't even predict between skills anyway. So it just became, a, uh, you know, a process of managing the fatigue from one delineating them between days, changing the exercise order, and then shifting that even more so as I got closer to competition. So I think that's hopefully a story that kind of shows how individualized this can be, but that it is possible. And the, the key pieces, just to kind of recap, is temporal awareness of, of when you're trying to peak one, of, one, one or more of these skills. Um, it's individualized assessment of where your skill levels are to therefore assess what is the maintenance dose you need and then what is an adaptive dose that you need to actually get better at it. And then finally, how those things interact. So once you can analyze all that, then you can kind of be shifting things around like a chef cooking two dishes at the same time. Okay, this goes in the back burner, keep it warm. This one I actually need to cook, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I'll just uh, say, yeah, I'll just say that's, uh, that's great. I'm thinking, uh, uh, first of all, you need to really understand, like you said, you really need to understand uh, your strength, your own strengths and weaknesses uh, before you really prioritize the movements uh, and uh, program those uh, like uh, uh, throughout the weeks uh, towards your competition. 
but you really also need to understand the the movement itself like um um like the basic intensity of the movement like how much volume you need in each movement like you said the if i look at the, the deadlifts and the atlas stone so atlas stone it's um it's a primarily very high intensity right like unless you're working on your skill but basically it's like for a very low low volume and high intensity you can do a lot of uh, atlas stone lifting and uh, when we're talking like about weightlifting then it's more uh skill focused so, so you need more uh more uh, uh you need to lift more throughout the week so more duration uh more like working at different intensities throughout the week so you also need to think about the movement itself uh, so then then you have the overlap between your own strengths and weaknesses and the movement and then you can really understand how much volume and intensity you really need for each one is that right is that correct to say absolutely yeah like i had um far more variations on the weightlift the weightlifting movements than anything else because there is more distinct components you know like a clean and jerk two movements but there's also there's the the dip portion of of the jerk and then there's the lockout and then there's the coming together right so i mean you right. can do jerks from blocks you know um for snatches there is not only the full triple extension but then also dropping under at the right time so you can do tall snatches if you're having trouble with mm -hmm. the timing of the drop under you can do drop snatches from behind the neck um so there are ways of, of practicing those skills that are specific to the movement errors that 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 a, a certain weightlifter makes and that is a far more of a uh, varied process than it is for like say a squat or a deadlift you know i have a handful of things like that for a deadlift like you know i want you to pause at mid shin because the bar tends to loop out and that teaches you to feel have time to feel that contact or you know maybe we could do a a pull from a deficit or even elevated depending upon where i think your 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 sticking region is disproportionate we'll try to improve that a little bit um or like if you were a super super arched bencher max legal width grip and you have a very short range of motion uh, maybe we do some you know flat back close grip benching feet up to actually get more strength in that bottom range you know that type of thing um but the like the flow chart is much more constrained for powerlifting than weightlifting and for strongman like absolutely there's a point when you do want to do variations on these things but i was so green that it was like let's just do the movements as they're going to be in competition a little bit and watch yourself rapidly improve you know i went from mm -hmm. being able to uh to barely do a 70 something kilo atlas stone to getting 125 in in the competition wow. i did so like that's not me getting 50% stronger or 60% stronger jeez almost doubling my strength. I can't do math, 80% stronger. Um, <laughs> that was like just learning how to do it, you know? So, and, and that number makes sense when you think about like my height, my proportions and what I can deadlift, right? It's not that surprising. Um, if anything, the, the 70 kilo is, is, is just an example of how bad I was at the movement to start and, you know, unskilled uh, versus the 125 being this massive improvement. It's more like, you know, if you could snap your fingers and, and give me basic competence, that's what I should be able to do. And that's what happened, right? So 100%. Yeah, I think that's a good characterization. Great. One thing I love to say is that you kind of use your use the overlap for, uh, for your own good. Like, wherever there is overlap, of course, there is a carryover also. Um, so you said it about the, that you didn't have to do a lot of deadlift, deadlifts because you, you, you made a lot of uh, clean pulls. I don't know. I'm, not I know nothing about the uh, weightlifting. Yeah, clean pulls. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but uh, but I know that what we talked about is that for instance, if you improved your dip, so you can use the bench press as a synthesis exercise, and then you can kind of reach them back and forth, um, and use this carryover, um, and the way you you will allocate it, the way you'll manage this will decide if it can interfere with each other or support each other. So it is also something to, to consider. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I imagine that you guys have found in the way you program with these six movements that 
Um, if you really want to do a, a big focus on, let's say, dips, you probably need minimal volume on overhead press and bench, right? Maybe a mm -hmm. little more on overhead press because it is you know a different plane. Um, but like th that's pretty intuitive, and I find the same thing is true with uh, like the deadlift and the squat. You will often find in the powerlifting world that um, when one of those goes up, the other one at least maintains. You know, mm -hmm. it's rare that you're like, yeah, my my squat went up, my deadlift went down, unless you're doing like an all out like daily max squat with volume back offs and you just don't have time to deadlift and your back so sore you can't express the strength but if you're doing a squat specialization cycle that's not really burning the candle at both ends then you typically find your deadlift will at least hold you know position because there's just so much overlap between the two movements right yeah and talking about overlap we of course there's the overlap that we can see uh between movement patterns but also what about things that we often ignore or can't see. And Rami, I know that you talk a lot about it. Would you like to, to give some examples for these type of things? Yes, yeah, so uh, if we're talking about, for example, uh, um, uh, let's say, for example, the deadlift and uh, chin-up. So uh, one is a lower a body movement and one is an upper body movement. And a lot of people think because it's uh, different movements and working on different uh, muscles and joints, then, there, there isn't supposed to be any overlap, but we see that if you if you work heavy on uh, chin ups uh, with a weighted belt, then there is some uh, degree of overlap between movements. So one is uh, something that um, many people don't think of is uh, lower back. So if you do heavy chin ups with uh, with a chain, it creates some uh, levels of fatigue in your lower back. Uh, and it can affect your deadlift. It can affect your uh, lower body recovery. Um, and it can also affect uh, your grip strength. And you can use traps, but uh, in general, it can also affect your grip strength and um, and your lat recovery. Uh, that works also in the deadlift and in, in the chin-up uh, differently, but it can it, it's something that you need to think about. And uh, when many, many people try to program all of those movements, they, they don't think about those overlaps. And another overlap is between, let's say, the back squat and deadlift and the overhead press. So a heavy overhead press uh, can create a certain amount of fatigue in your uh, upper back and lower back. Uh, and it can certainly affect each other. So maybe really depends on the individual but maybe it's not an amazing idea to go really really heavy with a high frequency in the deadlift and over at press maybe you need to combine like maybe bench press and the deadlift so just something to think about yeah i i guess something that we're saying is that these things are these things become more relevant as you get more advanced and stronger like i i don't know if i will do sleep about my one around 30 kilo press that can interfere with my 50 kilo on arm squat. Uh, but as you get more advanced, you will feel this and you will, you will need to consider this stuff and think more deeply when programming this stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, I've actually talked to a number of powerlifting coaches who they like to do uh, weighted hangs as grip work for deadlifts, you know? So that's, I mean, because like what I will typically do is have someone do a heavy rack pull, like like basically the highest I can set the bar in the cage where they can still pull it out of the rack and then just hold it for time. It's a great way to fix grip work. But you are actually actually loading yourself with you know around your one RM deadlift, and not a huge deal mm -hmm. if you deadlift three fifteen and you weigh two hundred pounds. But if you are at the point where you deadlift six hundred pounds and you weigh two hundred pounds, that's a lot of loading. And you can actually decompress your spine if you're if you're loading yourself up with and just hanging with with a dip belt on your, and you can get a similar thing. You can do one hand, you know, if if you don't want to put as much on the chain, um, and you know, obviously what you're holding on to is not the same thing as a barbell, but it's pretty close. It's not the exact same shoulder position, but it's pretty close. So absolutely, I think that you know when, when you mentioned uh, chin ups and, and deadlifts, my first thought was was that. So yeah, it's it's certainly not a an isolated anecdote by any means. Yeah, right. another thing to when thinking about it, another thing that has to be considered considered is the uh, the athlete's technique. Like the the same exercise selection can be very different from an athlete to athlete. So for me, for instance, I know that my deadlift uh, 
looks a lot like stiff like deadlift. I'm very hingy. Uh, and I use a lot with my lower back. And it is something that can interfere with my squat, especially lower squat and other hinge movements uh, in the program. But in comparison for someone who pulls sumo and is very vertical and not use a lot of his lower back, um, it can be totally different. And it is also something that we need to take into account. Uh, what do you guys think of it? Yeah, absolutely. You see this in uh, when you watch weightlifters and powerlifters train. You know, the um, the typical weightlifting squat, they're trying to emulate the body positions you're in on a, uh, a jerk and a snatch, sorry, a clean and a snatch. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously the clean is a, is a front squat. So uh, there's plenty of front squats in weightlifting. And the back squat, you typically are going to see people, if they can, be high bar and very, like they typically break at their knees before their hips in the squat pattern and um you know just get as deep as they can in that position they're wearing weightlifting shoes the high heel and you typically see weight weightlifters with very good dorsiflexion um or decent dorsiflexion and they work on it to become you know good dorsiflexion so you have these very upright squats um and the lumbar fatigue is it gets there because they are accumulating a lot of volume um you will typically see weightlifters almost do twice as much work as a powerlifter does you know if you're a nationally qualified weightlifter you're probably on average training eight times a week, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So that's one or two, two a days. And so much of it is because it's, uh, it's the, the focus is much more on the perspective of I'm building a skill rather than I'm building a quality of the body. If you're in kind of the powerlifting world um, and that perspective leads to different practices. And I think there's a lot to learn between the two. Um, and there's other characteristics of weightlifting, which enable it to just not beat you up as much like the eccentric, it's not really a thing in a lot of the movements, you know, when you, 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 you dump your snatch, you dump your clean and jerk, you're diving into the hole, you're sneaking under something. So it's much more concentric dominant and the absolute loads are lower. Um, like I said, if I was a good weightlifter who could squat 230, 220, I might be doing a clean and jerk with 170. I might be snatching 140. So versus, you know, like, 80 to 90 and, and, and 100 to one, one, 115. So the, even when you get really, really strong, uh, the muscular limits of, of moving the weight is not what you're up against. It's the velocity limits because you have to pull the bar high enough and you have to drop underneath far enough. So you can have a very, very, very good weightlifter who's just explosive, who can get the bar just a little bit off the ground. They're incredibly flexible, incredibly fast. And they can get underneath it and you're going to see like, you know, they're, they're almost touching the, the ground with their butt. But if you were to say, hey, I want you to do a one RM low bar back squat, they would they would grind, not as much as the powerlifter, but they would grind. And that would create a whole lot more time to develop tension and therefore muscle damage and then have a recovery time course and limits the amount of volume you can do. So uh, absolutely, you have to think about things like this. Mm -hmm. And um one more interesting thing is uh, I'm just thinking about the word specificity, and I know it's mm. like a big word. And I know that you gave a lecture, I think, last week, right? On the on, I did. on this topic. Mm. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking about like specificity and transference. Like, how much specificity do I really need in order to improve in one movement? And if we're talking about several movements, like six or nine movements, then you really need to think about that because you're investing, you have uh, limited time to invest in each movement. And like you said, in the Atlas Stone, so I'm a novice in lifting Atlas Stones, so I can invest a little time and uh, and I'm and I have a lot of more experience in powerlifting. So I, I need so just basically you need to think about that uh, when you program. And, and what I'm thinking is that if you can be, if you can see improvement, if you have a lot of movements that you want to improve on and you can be less specific and see more improvement or see the uh, next amount of improvement, then you're better off. You know what I mean? Like, because there is mm -hmm. a certain price you pay for specificity and the more advanced you are, uh, the higher the price. Well, yeah, it depends. So the um, the specificity is something that's a concept that if you only understand it in terms of black and white terms, it can kind of get you into hot water, you know, like um, more specificity is better. I think a better way of understanding specificity is it's powerful. 
you know, um, and you can only benefit from so much of it. So if you decide, listen, Bulgarian style, I want to get better at my one RM squat. So I'm going to work up to a one RM squat twice a day. Um, that's probably not going to be much better than if you'd worked up to a one RM squat three times per week, despite the fact that it's 21 versus three sets of one, right? So it's sevenfold the volume of specificity, but I would be very skeptical to think that you would get, uh, it would be a disproportionately smaller improvement. The ROI, if you will, the rate of internal in your investment Mm -hmm. would be a lot lower. And we have data to back that up, right? So, the question then is, okay, well, if specificity is powerful, what do I do the rest of my time? And that's where we can look at other research that indicates that there is benefits to that very practice, like I described earlier. And um, so, for example, there's a study by Fonseca and colleagues where they had these untrained lifters, which is a you know a limitation, but it's worth bringing up, who were doing either only Smith machine squats and they varied the loads or didn't vary the load. Or there was a group that did Smith machine squats in addition to deadlifts uh, lunges and leg press, and then either varied the loads or didn't vary the loads. And the two groups that actually did those four movements instead of just Smith machine squats outperformed the groups that just stuck with that same load. Probably coming back to that very practice contextual interference re-remembering effect. Now that may have not been the same thing in more advanced lifters, perhaps hard to say, um, but it might have been there was a cost to just doing squats as well. To your point. But it also depends on the complexity of the movement. So there's another interesting study also on relatively untrained lifter by Rossi and colleagues where they had a group that did only squats, half their squats, uh, sorry, half their volume of squats, half their volume as, as, uh, as leg press, and then only leg press. And they tested 1RM leg press, they tested 1RM squat, and then they tested jump height. And the interesting thing is that you see the leg press group and the half leg press group and the no leg press group, they all got the same improvement in terms of like the relative percentage increase and in the effect size. And that's because the leg press is just not that skilled of a movement. You're getting very good transfer from squats to it. It's really just about producing force at different joint angles and all those joint angles are included in a squat. Um, there's a lot less, I mean, there's, there's some things to learn from a leg press as a bodybuilder. I got to say that like, you know, bracing at the right time, foot placement and all that. But you can probably get it just from a couple of testing sessions, apparently, you know, um, the squat, not at all the same, you know, the leg press only group barely improved their squats and the leg press half squat half group improved about half as much as the squat only group. So in these folks with just training three times a week, they actually could have benefited from doing more of their volume of squats and less as leg press and then transfer to a totally different movement, not totally different, but at least not a trained movement was the jump height. And the jump height improved the most in the group that squatted, uh, the second most in the group that did some squats and leg press and not very much, but some in the group that did the leg press. So you can see there, it's like the similarity of movement, right? Um, If you take a barbell off your back at the top of a 1RM squat, you're going to leap in the air. Leg press, you just kind of push the sled out from you, right? So it's, you're in the same plane of movement. It's similar muscle groups. It's actually the same movement pattern just with a bar on your back. So it changes center gravity a little bit but it's a much more direct training stimulus. Um, So they did zero jumping, yet improved almost, I think, 9% their jump height in the squat only group, you know? So you'd have to think in that scenario, okay, what if the goal was to improve jump height, right? What we would probably do is include some jumping, call me me crazy, you know, and then scale back the amount of squatting they were doing and figure figure out, okay, how much loaded squatting can they benefit from uh, and then the rest of that time should probably be devoted to different types of jumping tasks, right? So, yeah, it, it very much depends on what you want to get better at and the, what, what qualities will transfer to it and what other tra- tasks you're trying to do at the same time. Um, and the more you get practice with that, I imagine you guys are actually quite good at, at balancing these six movements because that's your that's your stick, you know? But um, I think when you deal with, strength conditioning coaches and athletes, it becomes a, like a different equation for each athlete, each position, uh, each team, each season. Uh, oh, are we going all the way to playoffs? Okay, then we need to like stay like uninjured for longer, which mm-hmm. means the total training stress needs to be lower, right? Um, and these are the difference between closed and open skills too. And this is not something I'm an expert on. It's just something I know enough about to be like, oh, y'all know what the hell you're doing. But like a squat is a squat is a squat. You know, it's always, and especially in powerlifting, it's going to be an Alico rack 
it's going to be calibrated disks and plates. You're going to get the same commands. You know, you're going to get chalk. You have to wear a singlet, get the same seven millimeter knee sleeves, blah, blah, blah. But a cut in, in a team sport, you might be cutting to your left. You might be cutting to your right. You might cut, realize there's an opponent and then have to go the other way. You might need to backpedal. Uh, you might cut and there's mud, you know? So uh, the, the differences in these skills is that they are performed in an unpredictable environment at different velocities, at different joint angles in response to something, not you initiating it, but you reacting. So those skills need to be far more variable and far more uh, like grooved in a more broader base, if you will, rather than just being, I, I always put my, I do the same setup on my sumo deadlift, the knurling. Is, and, and the little the line where you put your hand on bench press lines up with my shin. I always turn my feet out at 45 degree angle. I do the same setup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you see different uh, approaches between these af athletes. You'll see high level power lifters who go through rituals for each one of their setups because they're trying to get in that same mindset to repeat that same performance. They're controlling to make the skill as closed as possible while in a team sport environment, they need to practice a lot of different things and just be generally warm and in the right mental state and then hope that their training takes over and their game experience. And, you know, there's always an argument between the SNC coach and the sports skill coach. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the SNC coach, a good SNC coach is basically going, all right, how do I not mess with that? Because that is the, the, the much more like unfriendly environment game practice is going to have the most transfer. And we're just trying to build the qualities of the body. You know, and maybe some specific mm -hmm. things that can kind of mimic that movement, but not to a whole lot, because ultimately, um, it's a big question mark as to how the SNC actually transfers to the field. Right. So you are limited in specificity. That's what you're basically saying, and that I think it is um, an, an advantage for us because we we can practice the same skill. And and unlike the the athletes that you mentioned, we're not limited in specificity because squat is squat is squat. Um, of course, there are diminishing returns for it, but there there is kind of advantage that we that we can uh, can use. Absolutely, yeah, and um, and I think there's also a benefit to varied practice to some degree. That's you know built into kind of the the six movements you guys have, but I would say you wouldn't want to rigidly adhere to the big six and only adjust load and reps. You know, like I think someone who wants to get better at bench press would do good with variations on the bench press. Sometimes someone who wants to get good at a low bar squat would probably sometimes benefit from a high bar squat. Um, and someone who wants to get better at a barbell standing overhead press would sometimes do well to do seated Smith machine press, you know? Um, so I think, um, yeah, someone who wants to get better at chin-ups, you, you can do like bands and make it easier and all this stuff. But sometimes the lat pull-down is just an easy choice, you know, to make them better at it, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think I think the, uh, the the learning is to not get locked into any any one system because then you're just closing off avenues of, of potential options. Um, and, uh, yeah, sometimes like the way to get good at the big six might be the big six plus nine or something like that, you know? So it, it just depends on on uh, on what those individual needs are, the time course, and what their where their deficits are and their weaknesses. Right. Great, great, and I think we covered a lot today. Um, so thank mm -hmm. you very much, Eric. We appreciate it a lot. Pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, really I appreciate you, it. gentlemen. I'm gonna let you gentlemen go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that now that we're we're very excited. I think we'll uh, stay up uh, a bit more late. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. We left you some links down, links down below, so make sure to check them. And thank you again, Eric. It means a lot to us. And, and see you soon.